But today, what we're going to do is look at a particular passage with two prayers in it. Uh, dangerous in different ways. One in a bad way, and one in a good way. You'll see what I mean in a few moments. But let's, let's go back to what we mean by the good news. We just celebrated it by taking communion together. We often throw the term around gospel. It's throughout scripture. It means good news. Why is it so good? It's because God has invited us back to himself. He's made a way back to himself. Every one of us is born into this broken world. We know that. We're, it's a broken world. We can see it on the outside. We can feel it on the inside. We're born into this world separated from God. And yet God, through Christ, has made a way back to himself. That's why we call it good news. And so a number of places in the New Testament, when Jesus is teaching, he'll talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And he'll talk, talk about what it takes to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes we make it much more complex and difficult than what it really is. In fact, it's very simple to enter into the kingdom of God. And the passage we're going to look at today will help us understand that. Um, sometimes when we're going through Scripture, studying through the Bible, we'll come across a passage, and uh, man, it'll, it requires some interpretational skill. You know, you want to get out of a concordance and look at how this certain word is used other places or a verse is used other places or how it matches other verses or maybe get into the original language or, or to the, the sentence structure. So we arrive at what the author intended us to understand. But not in this case. This passage is pretty understandable. And it goes like this. Jesus' teaching from Luke 18. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers, I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See? You understand it. But we still need to make some observations. Why did Jesus tell this story? He says it. There were some people who had a confidence in their own self-righteousness, in all of the things they did, and somehow that would make them right with God. There was confusion back then, just like there is confusion today. What is it that justifies a person before God? Now, that's a fancy theological term that Jesus uses, and it just means, what, what is it that makes a person right with God, that, that, that gives them a right to be in a relationship with God, that gives them a right to be in heaven one day? What is it that, that needs to happen? And that's why Jesus tells the story. And, and to, to, help explain, to help get his point across, he uses two extremes of society. On, on one side, he uses the, the Pharisee, 
and we'll talk about him in a minute. On the other extreme, he uses the, the tax collector. You, you couldn't have two greater polar opposites than the Pharisee and the tax collector. And we'll get into their prayers in just a few minutes, but I thought it might be good for us to make a few observations about each extreme. So let's talk about the, the Pharisee, all right? Now, a little bit of background on Pharisees. How this group, this sect, this Pharisee group started, it's a little bit shrouded in, in mystery. Nobody's really sure, but somewhere before Jesus came to earth, somewhere around 100 B.C., the Pharisees began. It, it, the Pharisee is an, it comes from an old Aramaic term, which means separated. Separated from what? Well, if you know some of the history back in those days, it was the Greeks who first conquered conquered that region. And as they conquered that region, they brought in their own philosophy, their own um, uh, worldview, and including Greek mythology and all of that. And, and, and the Pharisees began as an effort to separate themselves from all that the Greek culture was bringing into that area. The Pharisees were extremely committed to the Old Testament. Of course, that back then they didn't call it the Old Testament. It was just the scriptures. But they were committed to keeping God's 600-plus laws. That's what you'll find in our Old Testament in their scriptures, 600-plus laws. They were absolutely determined to observe what God said about how to go at life in the right way, to keep all of those laws, the civil laws, the ceremonial laws, and the moral laws. And they were good at that. And it was important for them to separate themselves. In fact, those who weren't Pharisees admired these Pharisees for standing strong against the encroaching Greek culture. But then, something happened. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, they began to get full of themselves and began to add to the... 600-plus laws. Eventually, it became known as the oral tradition. They developed all of these other laws and rules and regulations that they said people needed to live by in order to please God. And eventually, they almost became like this super-religious club. And either you were in or you were out. And if you were out, you felt judged by these Pharisees who tried to observe these laws of the Old Testament plus everything else they developed. And eventually, people began to feel under their thumb. And this is where the rub between Jesus and the Pharisees came in. When Jesus came, he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, it seems like, all the time. And he would say to things like this to them, what you have developed are man-made rules. What you have done is, is, is make it difficult for people to find God. What you have done is, is created a club that's nothing but a bunch of hypocr hypocrites. At one point in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he, he's talking about the Pharisees, and he says they, they, they give their money to help the poor, but they do it so everyone else will know. Or they pray out loud in public so everyone else will hear. Or, or they fast, but they do it in a way that everyone will see. You're making it very hard for people to find God. So, what about today? 
Of course, the Pharisees don't exist today, right? The Pharisee sect doesn't exist today. But the spirit of the Pharisees lives on. Um, Lived long enough to know, been around enough churches to know that there are some churches that have created a club-like mentality rather than a worshiping community where it's filled with the idea of rites and rituals and, and rules and regulations, and either you're in the club or you're outside of the club. In fact, maybe that was your experience growing up. In fact, perhaps you took a long time until you finally decided to come back to church because of the experiences that you had with the, quote, Pharisees of today. It's all about rites regulations and rules and all of that, man-made rules. So, those are the Pharisees. A little bit of background. And today, let's talk about this. And, and by the way, this is, just as a reminder, this is the prayer. I thank, God, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like the tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. Now, let's talk about the tax collector collector on the other end of the extreme. Um, If you have a King James Version Bible, it will say publican. A publican was a tax farmer. The tax farmers were in charge of collecting taxes from the citizens of the the country. What would happen is, as 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 a conquering nation came in, they would look for people in the in the country where, that they've just conquered, they would look for people to become publicans, to become the tax farmers for them, and to entice someone from the country they just conquered to become a tax farmer, a publican. <clears throat> they, they would say, you know, we want you to collect taxes for us, but you also can skim off the top so you yourself can have money. You can become wealthy. Well, of course, this created a real conflict, and eventually people hated the publicans, hated the tax collectors, because they were turncoats. They were, they were traitors. They were, they were wealthy. They were wealthy cheats. People hated the tax collectors. That's why Jesus uses them at the far extreme of the Pharisees. Now, one of the first things Jesus did when he came along as he launches his ministry, he went and found 12 followers, 12 disciples. And one of them was a guy sitting at a tax collecting booth named Matthew. And he says to Matthew, follow me. A tax collector, follow me. And one of the first things Matthew and Jesus did was go to Matthew's house and invite some of Matthew's friends, other tax collectors, to come and have a dinner with them. And the, the Pharisees show up and they say to Jesus, how can you eat with tax collectors, and sinners. The the Pharisees and others had a whole separate category for tax collectors. It was all the sinners, and then there were the tax collectors. They were that bad. Now, people just saw the tax collectors as being outside of God's reach, outside of God's grace, outside of God's love. There's no way God could care for someone like them. What about today? Well, we have the IRS. That's not a bad thing. It's good that we live in a country, we have taxes and all of that, and that's important. So I'm not disparaging them at all whatsoever. However, we do have 
the kind of tax collector from back then. That in, in all of our minds, we could come up with a particular group, a, a particular section of society, where we would think they are outside of God's reach, outside of God's grace, outside of God's love. I don't know who that is for you, but it could be someone. So that, that, that's, that's the Pharisees who were the super religious, super religious professionals. And then on the other hand, you had the tax collector. This tax collector was just filled with shame. He could not even bring himself to look at heaven. And he beat his chest because of what he knew what was inside his heart. All right? Two extremes. And all of us are somewhere in between. <clears throat> when I found out that we were doing this series called Dangerous Prayers, my mind went through a lot of different prayers. And I'm glad we're doing, you know, how do you, how do you forgive your enemy? How do you forgive those who have hurt you? And I'm glad we're doing, how do you uh, forgive? Or how do you, how do you uh, arrive at an undivided heart? These are going to be great uh, lessons to go through. Last week, forgiving your enemies. But the one that I, the, the passage I kept coming back to is this lesson of Jesus, these two prayers, dangerous in, in different ways. This first one, dangerous in a bad way. And again, this is the prayer of the, the, of the uh, Pharisee. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. Now, when I, when I read that prayer, I, I think I've never heard anybody pray a prayer like that. But just this past week, someone said to me, you know, I've, I've never prayed a prayer like that. But the thoughts in that prayer can sometimes show up in my heart. Even the theology of this prayer can sometimes show up in my heart and dangerously affect the way we approach God. And, and I think there are three dangerous elements to this prayer. I want to walk us through each of these three, and maybe you'll relate to each of these three and realize why such a prayer is so dangerous as we approach God. The first element is that there's a comparison of self to others. Now, we compare each other all the time, or we compare ourselves to each other all the time, and that isn't necessarily bad, all the time. Maybe you compared yourself when just even driving in, somebody was wearing something or a car or something, or maybe we compare our homes or um, our jobs, or we can compare our kids, that kind of thing, right? Um, yesterday was college football. I always compare Ohio State to Michigan. That's always fun. We compare all the time. And the thing about comparison is we can usually find a way to come out on top. We can compare up, we can compare down, right? If you're ever feeling bad about your life, where you live, what your life is like, go with us some summer to Burundi, and you'll feel great about yourself for some time. We compare all the time. Now, the, the, the Pharisee, he was comparing himself. And in a sense... He was, did well. I mean, he, he wasn't a cheater. He wasn't an adulterer. He wasn't an evildoer. He, he, he tithed. He fasted. I mean, those are good things. He was a good moral person 
good for him. But you'll notice that he picked carefully who he compared himself to so he could come out on top. Just last weekend, my wife and I were at a wedding over in the Akron area. It was a formal wedding in a church with pews. And, and in the back of each pew, there was a Bible. And on the front of each Bible, it said, Holy Bible. Maybe you have a Bible at home that says Holy Bible on the front. Bible means book. Holy means to be morally perfect. The reason the Bible is called holy is because it represents all the words inside, all the stories inside, represent expressions of a holy God who is morally perfect. <clears throat> what happens when you compare yourself to a morally perfect God? I'll, I'll tell you what happens. Let's take Paul, for example, the Apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee above all other Pharisees. He, he was um, just uh, extremely cautious about keeping the, the, observing the laws of God in, as, as best as he could. He talks about it in, the letter, in his letter to the Philippians. But at some point, as he's writing to the Romans, he says, we've all messed up. Not one person, not even me, has the righteousness needed to arrive at God's moral perfection. Then he says, we have all messed up and fall short of God's perfect standard. Who do you compare yourself to? Is, is it to your neighbor or to somebody in the family or to someone in the church? Or is it to God? This is the dangerous this is, this is how the, the, the Pharisee approached God, comparing himself to others, not to God himself. That was, that's the first element of his prayer that made it uh, so wrong. The next one is con a contractual arrangement with God. Um, maybe you know the term idolatry. When you go into the Old Testament, you'll see a lot of, a lot of idolatry and God's warnings against falling into idolatry. You know what idolatry is? It's it's applying leverage to get your God to do something. If I do this and this and this, or don't do this and this and this, somehow I apply leverage and get that God to act on my behalf. And this is sort of the way the Pharisee is talking. Look at what I've done. I've done this and this and this. I haven't done this and this and this. It's sort of a this for that, a quid pro quo. Certainly because of all of these things, I should be allowed into heaven. Now, the church that I was raised in, um, I remember walking into the pastor's uh, office one time. We didn't call him pastor. We called him reverend at that time, into the reverend's office. And, and his, his walls were filled with books of philosophies and religions from around the world. And all of these philosophies and religions, you know what they suggested? that somehow you could have a contractual relationship with God and do this and this and this and earn your way into heaven. Apply leverage and get God to what you want, get him to do what you wanted him to do. A contract, that's what a contract is. I do this and this and this, and then you pay me. And maybe you were raised in a church where, where you were taught that. Certainly if I'm like this and this and follow this rule and this regulation, I will be able to get God to do this and that. But if we live with that kind of mindset, 
then we are left in the same position as the Pharisee, and that is confidence in our own self-righteousness. One of the, um, one of the, one of the downsides of being a pastor is that people always expect you to talk about spiritual things and about God. <laughs> one of the good things about being a pastor is that people expect you to talk about spiritual things and God. I, I like having conversations with people, knowing where they are and their thoughts about God and how they approach God. And, and oftentimes, when I'm in conversations, this is what I'll hear. I, I've done this and this, and it makes it sound like they're carrying a box. And in this box are all of the good things in life that they've done. And I'm going to take this, this box of really good things, and I'm going to place it on this giant cosmic scale. And hopefully this, this scale will show that, that my good things have outweighed all of my bad things. And because of this, God will now allow me into his presence. Big box, big box. <clears throat> the problem is, and this is what I ask people at times, how do you know when you have enough in your box? How do you know when you've done enough? Can you ever know if you've done enough? Sometimes they don't know. It's, it's like a salesperson being told to meet a quota, but never being told what the quota is. That's confidence in self-righteousness, which is no confidence at all. So, <clears throat> these are the problems with this first prayer, the Pharisee's prayer. What I want to do is go on to the next prayer, the, the, the tax collector's prayer. Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Just one little line. Why is this dangerous? It's dangerous in a different way. Um, Maybe you know the story of the, uh, the, the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Um, in, in the story, there's the figure Aslan, who is a lion, and he's, the, he's, the, he's a type of Jesus, the Christ. He's God. <laughs> and at one point, the children in the story, they ask Mr. Beaver if Aslan, if God is safe. And Mr. Beaver says, is he safe? No, he's not safe but he's good. And this prayer is dangerous in the sense that it may create discomfort. It may be unsettling, but it's good, but maybe not safe. Let me show you how. First of all, it requires humility. That's hard for some people. Imagine living your whole life. Imagine living your whole life believing a certain way, and behaving a certain way, believing it's all good, and then in, in the flash of a light, or maybe over a period of time, coming to the realization that you've been just plain wrong. This is how Jesus finishes the, the story. He says, I tell you, this sinner the tax collector, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The people listening to the story must have been shocked. Are you kidding me? The, the, the Pharisee, with, with the box of amazing things that he's done and not done, 
is not justified by God, and yet this tax collector, a sinner of all sinners, is justified by God? Yes. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. The dividing line between the Pharisee and the tax collector was humility. And that's it. Now, I wonder if at some point telling this story something happened. So, some, some mothers started to approach Jesus with their children. He was a rabbi, and it was common back then for rabbis to bless the children of the mothers. In the very next verse after this story, that's what happens. The mothers bring the, the children to Jesus for him to bless them. And the disciples say, no, uh, stay away, moms. You know, Jesus is teaching. We're busy. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let the children come to me. I think this is a physical, this is a physical lesson illustrating what he just taught about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let the children come to me because... Anyone who wants to come into the kingdom of God, anyone who wants to be justified by God, must come to God as a little child. What do we know about children? They, they have no problem admitting their need, and they have no problem trusting. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, I've said this many times, You'll find it in James chapter 4. You'll find it in 1 Peter chapter 5. You'll find it throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You'll find it throughout the, the book of Proverbs. You'll find it threaded from Genesis through Revelation. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. That's a picture of humility. Coming to Jesus as a little child and that, Jesus says, makes a person right with God. That's it. Not just humility. It requires some bravery. Some people think that as Jesus is telling this story, there in the crowd is a tax collector. And he sees this tax collector. He's not just a tax collector. He's the chief of tax collectors. And you can find his story in the very next chapter, in the very first verse, and it's the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man who climbed the tree to see Jesus. And the first thing Zacchaeus did as Jesus went to his home was make things right. All the people he had cheated, he gave them four times whatever he had taken. It takes bravery. It takes bravery. Once you place your faith in Christ... It takes bravery to follow him. And that's what Zacchaeus did. What he did was simply begin to align his outward life with what he believed inwardly. It takes bravery. It takes strength to be a Christian. It takes humility to come to Christ and then bravery to follow Christ. And maybe that's where you are today. I just need bravery to, follow, to do the right thing like Zacchaeus. Um, I've heard it said before that there's no safer place to be than the center of God's will. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But it's bogus. It's not right. It's not biblical. It's true that there's no better place to be than the center of God's will, but no safer place? 
talk to those who are Christ followers in India and other places around the world where it's dangerous to follow Christ, but you don't have to live there. What's it like for you to stand up and say, I'm a Christ follower at work or at home or in your neighborhood? What's that like? It takes bravery, doesn't it? But it's there that we begin to discover that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. <clears throat> so around age 20, it became apparent to me that I was not a Christian. I thought I was all along just because I went to church and I had a big box. And um, I thought I was. And I com compared to others, of course. I'm a... But then God made it clear to me, no. So I remember praying this prayer. It was on a cold, rainy November night, and all I prayed was something like this. God, I need you in my life, and I need your forgiveness. Amen. That prayer is remarkably like the prayer of the tax collector. Oh God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. That's all it takes. That all. That's all it takes to come into a relationship with God. But then over the last 40 years, I've had to figure out how to bravely walk with Christ. But it's worth it. It's worth it. So I just ask you, if you've never really trusted in Christ, if you're not sure where you are with God, simply cry out, oh God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. If you have, then bravely walk with him. And by the way, even to the most seasoned Christians, maybe you've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, it's not a bad prayer to pray every day. We walk through this world and we, 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 it's messy, isn't it? It's a, it's a messy to walk through this world. It's a prayer to pray every single day. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we move forward with humility and bravery. Let's pray together. And now, God, thank you for uh, the simplicity of the gospel. <clears throat> the simplicity of the gospel that you invite us into a relationship with you through Christ, and all we have to do is admit our need to come to you like a child and then like Zacchaeus to bravely go and live for you. Would you help us to do that? Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.